Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Let's go to John chapter 8. I want to begin reading in verse 51 because it's our great privilege to open the Word of God and allow the Lord to speak to us today. And as we're turning to our text, I want us to see how this relates to the Christmas season. It does. It's a fascinating account of Jesus to the Jewish leaders. I want to begin reading in verse 51. Most assuredly, or some may say, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. When we think of Christmas, we think of a baby being born. And when you think of the birth of the baby, we think of a beginning. And that's why I think that this passage speaks about that beginning. Because that baby that was born in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. There was a beginning to the incarnate flesh of Christ. There was that beginning to the God-man. However, we need to note that the very one, this very Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, it's true that Jesus born in Bethlehem. It's true that he's the son of God. Then the second person of the Trinity, the Lord came into the world into human form, but he did not begin at Bethlehem. That's the whole point. There was a birth and a beginning, but yet he makes a shocking statement to these Jewish leaders. Before Abraham was born, I am. When Jesus said that Abraham saw his day and he rejoiced, that's found in verse 56, that Abraham saw his day and he rejoiced in it. They knew that Abraham could not have seen the end of the future. They knew Abraham wasn't looking off. And so they rightly concluded that if Abraham saw you, it's because you were alive during Abraham's time. 
And that's, they're saying you're claiming that you were alive during Abraham's day? A thousand years, two thousand years before? If Abraham saw you, you must have seen him. And that's why verse 57, you're not even 50 years old. That's what they're saying. You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Now the number 50 is just a round, it's rounded off because it was commonly referred to as being, now you're an elder, you're aged, you're mature. You've come to that place in your life where now you've reached. In, in other words, they were saying, you're not even an elder, you're not even an old man. And, and you're not even really mature physically. How could it be that you have seen Abraham or that Abraham has seen you and he's been dead for millennia? And the Lord's response was monumental. Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. What a claim. If we were to translate that literally in verse 58, it would read like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham became, before he became, before he even was, was formed, so what it means that there was a definite time that Abraham was born. There was a definite time that he began, a point in history when that man that did not exist came into existence. Jesus says, before that, I am. Think of it. That's an eternal present. It indicates no beginning. So to become is to pass from nothingness or non-existence into existence. We've come from nothing and now we've begun. It denotes that, that now we, we, there's that transition. But Jesus' statement is a statement about eternity. His being, uh, having that, that eternal quality. It's a statement of everlasting life that has no beginning, has no end. So Jesus is attributing to himself, and the Jews understand this, an eternal existence that is absolutely divine. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am divine. And even the word before is really symbolic, and it's a concession that to human comprehension of time, to our way of thinking, and and. In the life of God, there is no before and there is no after. So Jesus says, then I am the eternal, the existing one who eternally existed. So it's not like our way of thinking. He's saying, I've always been. Thus, Jesus is claiming to be the eternal God. They understand that. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That's the idea of it. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Frankly, based on the laws of grammar, that really reflects an impossible statement by the speaker. The speaker is God, and, and that's the only way that it could be from everlasting to everlasting. No beginning, no end. And of all of the great claims, the majestic claims that Jesus made in the New Testament, 
there is none that is as high as this claim. This phrase, before Abraham was, I am. It was audacious for the Jews to think, here is someone claiming that he's God. Here's someone who's claiming that he is eternal. They knew exactly what he is saying. They knew that he was claiming to be the timeless one, the God who was from everlasting to everlasting. And they make their choice in verse 59. They take up stones to stone him. Any man who would stand as a person and claim, and they thought it was blasphemy that he was claiming to be the eternal God in the temple, such, that, such a claim that they thought his life ought to be crushed out. So they attempted to do that. Now, at that point, in this time while Jesus was standing and speaking to them, the, the temple hadn't been completed. There were still parts that were under construction. Why would I say that? Because there would have been plenty of stones around to stone him. There would have been plenty of rubble around. So there's no question what he's claiming, that he is claiming to be the eternal God. But when he said, before Abraham began, I am, there's a little phrase, I am. And it opens up for us really the meaning, and I think it's familiar to you. There, the Greek word egg or ego means I. Ego I me. I am. I'm existent. It is the equivalent in the New Testament to the Old Testament, what we find in, in Exodus chapter 3. It's called the tetragrammaton. That's a big word. Theologians love these big words. You know what tetragrammaton means? Four-letter word. <laughs> That's literally what it means. It's a four-letter word. But it's come to mean the name of God because those four letters that we call Yahweh or Jehovah, God's name is made up of just those four letters. It's the name of God in the Old Testament. It's used 6,800 times. It comes from the Hebrew verb to be. That's their way of saying, I am. I am existent. I am self-existent. And so the Jews knew the name of God to be, I am. And when Jesus said, I am, they knew that he was claiming to be God. As a matter of fact, we can go over there to Exodus chapter 3 and just take a look at some of those because that's where God is speaking to Moses and he's about to send Moses back to the children of Israel. They're under bondage in Egypt and God makes himself very plain in the burning bush and he's manifesting himself to Moses because he's about to commission Moses to lead the over two million Jews out of Egypt into the promised land. Verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, it says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they say to me, and they say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? In other words, because what is the name of this God? Now, there were many, many gods in Egypt. They all had names. They all were known by different things. So he wants to know 
Who do I say is this God that is sending them? In verse 14, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me to you. The self-existent one, the one who has eternal existence, eternal present tense. He is now as he has gone from before and will continue after. No beginning and no end. That's so difficult in our concept because we are in time. It's so difficult to think of something having no beginning, having no end. So what's bound up in that name, that eternal existence? Back in verse 11 you know, uh, here, Moses, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, how, who am I? How can I pull this off? In verse 12, he says, And he, so he said, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is going to be a sign. I am the God that's there. I'm going to be with you. See, this is the God who is the I am. He is the God who is with us. There's a second thing that we can learn about I am. I am is the eternal one, and he is present with his people in a near sense. That's why we can just jump down a little bit to verse 17, the same passage. And I do not, and, and I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you will say to him, The God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So he is saying, He is going to come, He is going to redeem them, He's going to deliver them. And Let's just go over to chapter 6, <laughs> chapter 6 here in Exodus, in verse 2, because the story now, the Lord is speaking again to Moses, and the story continues on, and Moses has already gone once to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, of course, isn't going to let the children of Israel go, and so in verse 2 of chapter 6, it says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I, have, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. Let's stop right there. Because right here, he's telling them, I'm going to be the redeemer. I'm going to be the one who's come. Now, over a hundred times in the book of Genesis, the name of I am or Yahweh or Jehovah is used, but they did not understand really the depth of what that was. They didn't understand that. They knew him as El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. They knew him that 
There was a quality to God's name that he was the everlasting one. But now he is being revealed as the eternal, self-existent. That's why he says, I will establish my covenant with them in the land of Canaan in which they have sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. That is the promise to give them the land. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I am the I am. That's what he's telling them. And I will bring you out of the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from bondage. And here's really a key word to redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. That's what he's promising them. Now he is the redeemer. Now they, they had never known God like this. Now I am the eternal one, the eternally powerful, the I am that's near my people. And there is a strong sense of redemption. And then in verse 7, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the I am. That's the way it reads. The I am your God has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will give you the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the I am. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's telling us. I am the I am. Amazing. When you hear God call the I am, we're not just talking about his eternity being eternal we're not just talking about that he's everlasting existent he is our redeemer he is our savior he is our deliverer that's what he was telling israel that's what he is for us not just that he redeems them but that he makes them his people he brings them into a covenant relation. He brings them into a special relationship. And then he pours out endless blessings on them. That is our God. That is our God that came. In Exodus 6, he's really defining the identity of God, the salvation in his name. God is a God who is going to redeem us, redeem his people. He's come to make us his own to give a quality of life, a quality of eternal life. Think of that. He's not just come to give us life, but he's come to give us a quality eternal life, to help us to grow. The whole redemption of God is worked out from the beginning. And as we've seen with Christ, the whole plan of God was exactly as he had established it, that he would be the redeemer so much was bound up in that name, I am. That's why I've entitled this today, What's in the Name? What's in the name, Emmanuel, God with us? What's in the name, I am, Jehovah? So when Jesus comes into the world as a Savior, and they called him his name, Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. And he's claiming to be the I, the I am, the saving God, the transcendent God, the eternal God. He's saying, I am the eternal transcendent God who's come to rescue you out of the bondage of sin and bring you into a relationship with himself. 
That's what he means when he says, I am. He's saying, I am the one who makes my people that they might enjoy unimaginable bliss and glory and the blessings in this life and the glories of heaven. We have yet to see. And I, I had a discussion this just past week about a young man, and he's got family members about to about to go be with the Lord. And he says, I, I just don't think heaven's going to be all that great. <laughs> I said, we have no idea how marvelous it's going to be, how wonderful it's going to be. We have not yet even a glimpse of the glories. And when you're just in that place of bliss in your life, just think it's going to be even greater than that. We haven't even consumed uh, and been able to conceive the whole glory into the fulfillment in your life. You'll have purpose, you'll have meaning, you'll have a place to serve. And it's not just going to be, well, we got to sing another song in heaven. <laughs> it's going to be hallelujah, hallelujah. Boy, I want to sing. I just, I, just so much going on and it's going to be so far beyond what we could ask or think. So to know the meaning of the name is to understand God's redemptive purpose from the beginning to the end. It was an honored name. It's an awesome name. This is the blessed name. And the Jews knew it. So when Jesus said, I am, and picked up rocks to kill him, it's because his, they thought it was blasphemy, and it overwhelmed them because they knew exactly what he was claiming. They had a choice. They could either face, then recognize that this is the eternal God and fall down and worship him, or stone him as a blasphemer, uh, as a blasphemer, and, and that would have the audacity, audacity to come into the temple to make such a claim. Well, of course, they make the wrong choice. Jesus is the I am. John loved that term. John tried to capture that term in the Gospel of John by saying, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he says, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. Over and over he says, I am, I am, I am. John, by quoting all of these phrases, he's using substantives to, to fill the content of all that I am means and represents. He is the bread of life. That means he's the one who savingly feeds that hungry soul. It means he is the light of the world. He is the one who leads the sinner out of darkness into the wonderful light. And he is the door the one who savingly opens the way into the kingdom of God. He is the good shepherd, the one who in salvation protects and guards and feeds his flock. He is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine who by his life can produce fruit to the glory of God in our lives. That's who the I am is. Those are all saving titles, and they fill up the content so that we have a better understanding of I am. The Jews should have made the right choice, but they made the wrong one. 
this is a very serious crime, probably the most serious crime committed in the universe. In Deuteronomy 28 and 58, and I've given it to you in your notes, it says, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in the book, to fear this honored and awesome name, I am your God. The I am your God. If you don't fear that awesome name, the I am name, all right, what does he say? Then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses, and he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you also every sickness and every plague which have not been written in the book of the law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Well, God says, if you don't honor the name I am in its fullness, I'll destroy you. He's done it. It wasn't very long in A.D. 70 that the Roman horde comes in and about a million and one hundred thousand Jews were destroyed in Jerusalem alone. That doesn't mean the 985 other towns in Palestine that were also destroyed by the Romans who were acting out God's judgment. We've got to fear the honored name, the awesome name. When Jesus said, I am, he was saying, I am the child born into Bethlehem. I am the child born in Bethlehem. And before Abraham was... I am. This is the eternal one. Jesus is saying, I've come to the world as the I am to redeem. Because that's what I am means. He is the redeemer. The one who brings us back. The one who blesses his people forever. That's why he came. That's why we remember this season. So to accomplish this. To accomplish all of that, the giver and the master over salvation, the Lord has to exercise power over certain elements. We're going to look at those. First of all, in Mark chapter 2, let's just go over to Mark chapter 2. Familiar story in Mark's gospel. Remember the story that so many were coming to Jesus. He had gone to Capernaum. And there, he is in a house, and so many were surrounding the house that no one could get in. And so four men have a paralyzed man, a paralytic. So what do they do? They start ripping off roofing. Now, I don't know if you've ever ripped off roofing. <laughs> Nowadays, I mean, we get enough rain that we try to do it. In an arid land, you would want to keep the sun out. You would want it to be cool. Not so much for the rain. But let me tell you that they were waterproofed. And so this was no, no small task to start tearing that roof apart. And they lower a man down. What does it say? Verse 2, Mark chapter 2. Immediately many were gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. 
And now some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. And they were all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Think of that. You can see the story in your mind's eye. How now he is forgiving sins. Who can forgive sin? The question is asked, who can forgive sin except for God? Well, some of the scribes were saying, that's what's, what's going on here? Who is this man? Who does he think he is? And Jesus reading their minds, knowing their thoughts, he knew that. And he says, and he asked a fair question. Which is easier to say you're forgiven your sins? Now, I was raised in a religion where you could go and a man would say, just go say four Hail Marys and our Father and your sins are forgiven. Now, I've forgiven you your sins. It's easy and I could stand up, you could come and talk to me and I'll say, oh, your sins are forgiven. I've forgiven you. I don't have that power, but why does Jesus say this? He says it because he has the power, because he is the eternal God, the I am, that he can forgive sin. So he says, what's easier, to say rise up, take up your bed and walk, or to forgive sin? There was something they could see. He got up. He took his bed. He obviously had been paralyzed. They knew it. I mean, they had seen him lowered down. This is no trick. So you see, if he is the Redeemer God, wouldn't you expect that he could forgive sins because he had this power to redeem? He has that power, and he could exercise power to forgive your sins and my sins. Well, there's a second thing that he needs, and we find it in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we see that he has the power over spirits. I love this and I learned something again. I always like to get to study and learn something. And there is, uh, I, I, and I don't, I don't often read some of the other versions. I like to get back to the original. But there's a word here, and I'm going to bring it out, that we don't see. Lisa, it's not in my King James. It was found in the... I can't remember what version it was, but I'll bring, I'll bring it out to you. When we think about Christ, we think of him as being that sovereign I am, the Redeemer God that has power to exercise and forgive sin, but he has power over the spirits. In Luke chapter 4, let me begin verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, city of Galilee, 
was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a, a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Let's stop right there. We're going to pick up in just a second. He is saying, and by the way, let me say that all demons are dirty. All demons are filthy. This isn't saying, well, there's some demons that are, because this one, it specifically said an unclean demon. Now you have some demons that have, they array themselves as ministers of light. They array themselves, put on that fine gray flannel suit, and they look like, boy, isn't that something? And then you have an unclean demon that works to bring about perversions. They're deviant to produce all kinds of deviant behavior. So there's white-collar demons. <laughs> there's, you know, those that are deviant demons. But they're all demons. They're all demons. None of them are clean. And, and you know, uh, the spirit clock cries out here with a loud voice. And this is what's not translated. Maybe you have a version where it says, Ha! In the Greek, it's Epsilon Alpha. What does that mean? It would mean, ah! <laughs> That's exactly what it, it's hard to translate. How do you translate, ah! But that's what the demon is saying here. Ah! There's Jesus! We know who you are! What have you done? Why have you come to destroy us? It's not time yet! <laughs> So that's what he's saying, and that's so hard to translate that, but you get the idea, the panic in the demon's voice. That's what's in the original. He says, oh, no. Now, that's earth translation. <laughs> Literally, it's, ah. Well, is it our time? Have you come now? The demon's in fear, and Jesus rebukes him. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and did not hurt him. Why did, this, why did God allow the demon to throw that man down on the midst? Everybody would see, ah, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm out of here. And he throws the man down so everyone would see the power of God. They would recognize what Jesus had done. Jesus rebukes him. And so he slams him down. And verse 36, Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The spirits obeyed him. Why? Because he is the I am. There's a third thing. No one else could have power over that. But it's found in John chapter 14. And how are we doing on time? We're going to make it. John chapter 14. 
This third thing is about Satan himself. God has power over Satan himself. And we find it, well, in, in chapter 14, you know, sometimes we forget that this is a discourse that's happening at the Last Supper. You can look back in chapter 13, because John does not give the example of the everything that's happening at the Lord's Supper. But in chapter 13 and verse 30, talks about how Judas received the sop of bread, and he immediately goes out. And then in chapter 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, and my Father's house are many mansions. All of this discourse is going on after Judas has left, and it's taking place at the Last Supper. So, in verse 30, the, the discussion continues on. And he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. What did he just say? The ruler, Satan, the ruler of this world, that Satan, is coming. He has nothing in me. He cannot find any area where I have failed. He cannot find any way that I have failed. Uh, fallen down. He can't find anything in me. He has nothing in me. I have done nothing wrong this 30 years that Jesus has lived. There's not a wrong word, not a wrong thought, not a wrong deed. Satan could find nothing in Jesus. He's powerless over me. That's what he's saying, but I feel him coming. He has no power. Remember way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, there was coming a day when the seed of the woman would go into conflict with the serpent and the seed of the serpent, and he would bruise his head, but the serpent would get the heel. But the bruising of the head was that final fatal blow. The cross is going to be that fatal blow. Satan does not know that. In Luke chapter 22, in verse uh, 52 and 53, he says, And Jesus said to this chief priest and the officers of the temple, the elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? Remember, this is on the night he's in the Mount of Olives. That he's in the garden. He's been praying. And he says, while I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't put your hands on me. Why are you here now? And then he says in verse 53, then he answers his own question. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This is Satan's time. Satan is trying to grasp him. Why are you here now? Because it's time for Satan, the power of darkness, to act. Let him come. He's got nothing in me. There's no vulnerability, no weakness, no flaw, no sin. No place for Satan to strike that fatal blow. And the end of verse 31, let's go. That's the idea of it. We're going to go. You can kill me. I'm not afraid. Satan has nothing on me. He can kill me here, 
but he cannot keep me dead because Jesus said that he had life in himself. That's what Hebrews 2 and 14 says, though through death he, Christ, rendered powerless the devil. Through death he rendered powerless the devil. If he is the I am, then and he is if he is the Redeemer God, he must have power over sin, and he exhibited that. He had power over the spirits, and he exhibited that. He had power over Satan, and he exhibited that. But there's a fourth, that he has power not only over Satan and death, he has that power over our death. The power of death had to be conquered. And that's what he talks about there in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. I think I've given it to you there in your notes. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered sin. He's conquered in all of those. Destroy this temple. Back in John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Remember, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. These Pharisees that knew the word... Can we say blockheads? <laughs> they had an idea of the word. They had an understanding. And all that they said was, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. And in three days, you're going to raise it up. But he's speaking of his body. And he's saying, you kill it, and it's going to come out of the graves because Satan cannot hold me. He has nothing on me. There can be no punishment because there's been no crime. In John 10, 17, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has authority to take it from me. I lay it down. Jesus giving it up of his own authority. He had authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. I will die, but I'll live again. You see... The I am, the Redeemer God that came. This I am. He had power to redeem his people of their sins because he conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. And when Jesus says, before Abraham became I am, they knew he was claiming to be God, the God of redemption. They should have remembered that he had shown his power over sin, that they had, he had shown them his power time and time again as the God of redemption. He had shown them power over the spirits, power over Satan. And if they hadn't seen that, they were about to see on the cross that after the cross, there was an open tomb. <laughs> he had power over death. They should have made the right choice. They had the evidence when he says, I am. They should have said, you are the son of God. There are others that came and they worshiped and they recognized. He said to them on the night that they came to betray him, they come and it, it's found in John chapter 18. They're coming and they're going to take him. And he says, I am, and there's over 600 in this Roman legion. Judas is bringing them, chief priests are in there, and all of the different entourage. And when they said, where is Jesus? And Jesus says, I am. Now, your translation says, I am he, that he is in italics, because it's not there. Jesus is saying, I am, and the proof of that is, 
600 people, <laughs> they fall to the dirt. They fall on their face at the name that Jesus spoke, that name of God, that powerful name. I am. Well, that's really rubbing it in. Jesus, who was standing there to betray him, and he's saying, where's Jesus? I am. Boom. The whole crowd. Then in verse 7, well, who are you seeking? And Jesus answered, I am he. I am him. That's the, res the, the response that they should have found was to fall down. Not that they did that. They were in sheer terror. They were crushed by the force of his name. They should have stayed down. The proper responses of I am this great God who came in humility in a manger we ought to recognize deserves our worship. We ought to recognize he deserves our all. We need to recognize who our God is. The tragedy is that on that night, they got up. They killed the I am of God. They failed to honor that awesome name. They failed to honor this great God. So here's the question. How will you respond this Christmas to who Jesus is? How will you respond today? In understanding who our Lord is, in understanding the power of His name, and understanding the might of His power, understanding that He showed them unmistakable power in every aspect, what will we do? Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions, or perhaps you have questions on a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website, or you can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Is no longer dead.